Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are going back into the history of this podcast, and we're digging up an episode from 2019 featuring Dr. John Redman. Dr. Redman is the curator of botany at the San Diego Natural History Museum, and he has a particular interest in the prickly pear cacti. But from that vantage point, he has expanded into trying to understand the biodiverse flora of Southern California and the Baja Peninsula. And he brings a lot of great botanical skills to trying to understand an underappreciated flora. Before I get to that, with the changing of the seasons comes changing of your wardrobe. And In Defense of Plants has a lot of customizable apparel for sale over at their Teespring store. You can find links to that in the show notes over at indefenseofplants.com or just up at the top of the website, click on apparel and pick out all of the wonderful colors, designs, and styles that work best for you. But that's all I have to say about that. On with the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. John Redman. I hope you enjoy. Dr. John Redman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Well, I am the curator of botany at the San Diego Natural History Museum, and I specialize in the flora of San Diego and Imperial Counties of California, but especially all of Baja California. Wow. That's a lot of plants to be in charge of, or at least trying to understand. Um, Were you always a botany-minded person, or is this something you kind of came to a little bit later in your education or career? I started off, actually, I'm from a very rural part, uh, West Central Illinois, and I started off as a pre-vet major and was going that route until Farm Aid hit um, in the Midwest. You know, the farms were going under, the mom and pop farms, and I wanted to be a country vet, and that didn't look like it was going to be continuing. And I just had some really good uh, botany professors during my undergrad, which was at Millican University, and uh, they said, you need to go to graduate school. And uh, coming from where I did, my parents never went to college, and I didn't even know there was such thing as graduate school. I knew there was you know, med school and vet school and things like that. (laughs) But they just kept pushing me saying, go this direction. And I ended up then going to do my master's at Southwest Missouri State, starting uh, work in botany there on the flora in the Ozarks region. And then uh, I wanted to say very classical botany, kind of alpha taxonomy oriented, and uh, ended up arriving at uh, Arizona State to work on my PhD there. And then uh, from there, I fell in love with Baja California and never never turned back. That's a fun trajectory and probably one, again, as, as many guests, is mirrored quite a bit where you, you, you don't really know what the opportunities are there until someone kind of holds your hand and says, oh, no, look. And then, you know, once that bug hits, it's, it's, it's not looking back. And one of the things I really like about your work and, and what you just described there is that emphasis on alpha taxonomy and, and floristics in general. And that seems to be something that's kind of fallen to the wayside, but you're living proof that it's still alive and well in, in certain pockets. And, and, and really, I guess, from a botanical standpoint, what excited you the most about this approach to botany instead of um, you know, being pushed down some sort of big theoretical, ecological sort of or even molecular route? That's a good question. You know, the um, we had that press graduate school to 
move a lot more molecular because that was that was over 20 years ago now and molecular was really starting to grab hold and you know i think it started for me since i came from a very rural part and i had not really a, addressed plants at a younger age because i basically i came from an agricultural area so plants were corn and beans mm. and um <laughs> until my undergrad work I look at the diversity of plants and it just blew me away in respect to, there was a lot more out there than just corn. And uh, I'm in love with that idea that, oh my gosh, there are a ton of different plants out here around us. I think then that carried on where in graduate school, especially my PhD, when I worked on my group, which happened to be the Choyas of Baja California, but I use things like cytogenetics and some, uh, you know, chromosome studies and looking at fertility and viability of pollen and hybridization. And I really wanted to stay as classical as, as I could because there seemed to be fewer and fewer people. And I guess the people I respected the most were those professors that you could bring a plant to and they could tell you everything about that. They could tell you, you know, what its name was, some information about it. Yeah, and I think the number of people in academia in those sorts of departments where you can still pull that off, bring a plant, uh, especially a local one, to them and be able to identify that, that's being pushed to the wayside again in favor of that. But again, it doesn't always have to be the case. And as you kind of just hinted at here, there's ways of combining those more traditional methods with these more advanced methods and, and still eking out this idea of understanding floristic diversity and just appreciating the diversity of life on this planet. Because again, if you value biodiversity, it's those individual species that really comprise our concept of biodiversity. And, and that's it's enlightening to hear that. But just being able to look at people and say, I admire this, I aspire to be this. It's so important to have those people in life, especially if this is the kind of path you want to go down. Absolutely. And my major advisor who passed away just a few years ago, but he was just one of those people. He was just a uh, he was an old school botanist, you know, he knew how to edit a paper, he knew how to write in a certain, you know, language style, and he just was a fountain of knowledge. I mean, he really just had so much information that I, I was always very impressed with him. And my master's advisor, who was that same style of, of a botany professor. Very cool. So it sounds like you had a really great sort of cohort of people to inspire you and get you on that right trajectory. But you mentioned your original work was on Choya, and that that sounds terrifying. Uh, for anyone that's come into close contact with the Choya, that's got to be a difficult group, physically speaking, to work with. Now, I realize they're beautiful and fascinating plants. You know, did you see that as a challenge? Did you know what you were getting into? I definitely did not know what I was getting into. Um, <laughs> I think uh, when I arrived in Arizona, I actually wanted to work on aquatic plants. Oh, wow. Uh, I thought that would be my... I don't know. I was fascinated by coming from Missouri and I had no idea. I actually thought the desert area was kind of a wasteland at that point since <laughs> I was coming from Illinois. So I arrived in Arizona and my major advisor was an expert in cacti. I mean, he's really foremost cactologist. And through academic coercion, I would say, um, <laughs> he said, you need to work on this Choyas group. And he said, ah, I had another student, you know, start this project on a hybridization between some choyas in Baja, California. That would be a really nice little PhD. And I looked there and I visited Baja and I'm like, okay, well, that's an interesting project, but 
let's just work on all of the Toyas of the peninsula. Oh, <laughs> and I ended up expanding my project to the all of the Toyas for the entire region, which happens to be the center of diversity for that group. So it really kind of ballooned into this very large systematic study of the group. Wow. Um, just to give you an idea of the diversity of Toyas, there are 27 different kinds of Toyas in Baja, California. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. They have gone crazy on the peninsula and adjacent island. And for me, that gave me that whole sense of exploration. So I got to explore Baja and at the same time, starting to learn the entire flora. I was focusing on the Choyas, but I was collecting all of the plants, trying to learn the flora at the same time. And got to visit basically the entire peninsula, many of the islands as a graduate student, and um, really just kind of fell in love with the area and the project. It ended up that it was so large as far as field work is concerned, lucky to get a Fulbright fellowship. And I moved to Ensenada in Baja California, and I spent a year there actually finishing off all of my field work in the process. So I, you know, I fell in love with the culture of Mexico and did my Choya work on this <laughs> as well. Wow. And that's amazing. But you can also see, you know, following sort of the trajectory of, of the work you've done since is there's hints of that inspiration being placed there. And it almost seems like a little bit of naivete on your part, not really knowing what you were getting into was actually the best thing about that, because that seems like a very large project hearing it now to, to have to bite off a chunk of for your PhD, let alone not really knowing what you were up against in terms of desert flora. And and just, again, choyas in general, it's one of those plants that if I post a picture of it, everyone thinks they're beautiful, but almost everyone that's been to an arid region has a story, uh, usually an unfortunate story of an interaction with a, a choya pad or many choya pads. And, and I'm wondering if the appreciation of choya before you started jumping on to this project and, and, and kind of understanding it, Obviously, they weren't as well known, but was the diversity sort of, did we have an understanding that there was this sort of diversity out there? Or was this a lot of legwork just to figure out which ones are different, which ones are unique, which ones are hybrids, that sort of thing? Took a lot of legwork. You know, one of the problems as a taxonomist, one of the things that we use to understand that diversity are our herbarium specimens. Imagine for many cactus groups, the herbarium documentation is very, very poor. I always say it's kind of a painful experience to make a herbarium specimen, <laughs> but they, they actually, it's not, not true, actually make very, very nice specimens if you do it correctly. Right. But historically, botanists have not done it very well, and that has made, been it very difficult to understand diversity and to look at those older specimens and look at distribution and variability and, you know, cacti change when you take them from the field to a herbarium sheet, there's a lot of things that are lost. So it took a lot of legwork and collections to understand that. And like all cacti, choyas are very phenotypically plastic. So same species could be loaded with spines near the coast where there's a lot of wind, and it may be completely spineless in internally in, in the, you know, inside deserts, basically. So it really required a lot of time in the field to understand that variation and hybridization and polyploidy active part of the opuntioids in general. So they're a fascinating group. I had no idea the diversity. I mean, I ended up describing, I think, eight new choyas in my dissertation work. 
But little, to, I mean, I had no idea at that point that it was going to balloon into the floristic work for the entire peninsula. For sure. And it seems so wonderfully serendipitous, but a, a perfectly timed that you would jump on this project that did require that time in the field, and especially in such a unique spot like Baja. Following the trajectory of, the, of your publications and your work, it makes a lot of sense that this would birth the career that it has, but at the time, you know, who knew? Uh, but that's pretty remarkable. And I guess zooming out, you know, what makes this area of Southern California and Baja so special? I mean, why is this an area of such floristic endemism and diversity? And, and why does it scream to you in terms of, please study, <laughs> please spend time here, please look at what's going on here? Why is it so special? Well, I think for multiple reasons, it has that kind of frontier feel. There's a lack of roads. There's a lot of mountains and a lot of them, it's very difficult to get in. From that standpoint, there are pretty large areas that we still have little documentation, you know, herbarium specimens and people exploring in those. Even though it's been studied for, you know, 150 years, there are still a lot of areas that need more work. The peninsula is part of its diversity comes from you know, the northern part, the northwestern part of the peninsula is a Mediterranean climate, so it's a winter rainfall regime. The southern part of the peninsula is a summer rainfall regime. So huh. the areas in the middle get a little influence of both or they get nothing. And they may get hurricanes that come through or major chubascos that the plants have to respond to at weird times. And, you know, the peninsula in general... I mean, not just all of those factors, and then you could also throw in geology. It goes up over 10,000 feet in elevation, and it goes way below sea level in areas as well. So it's got this huge diversity of everything. <laughs> it's been pulled away from mainland Mexico, and so things either came along with it or they arrived later, but they've been isolated for a long period of time, you know, with the creation of the Gulf of California. And that has increased the endemism. Things have evolved in those areas. I think it's about 26% of the native flora is endemic Whoa. to the peninsula. So it's quite high for something that is still attached to mainland uh, North America. Wow. That's interesting perspectives. And it almost feels like any student that has read anything on biodiversity, you have pretty much every major hypothesis that people like to test in trying to explain diversity happening in a very relatively small geographic area. Again, relative here, but time, isolation, topography, soils, climate. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But again, to put it in perspective, you realize to some level that there is this amazing diversity there, but then the other part of what you said is that it's very understudied, very undersampled, and that's really important when it comes down to understanding and conserving biodiversity. If you don't know it's there, you can't protect it. So it, it really does kind of make sense then why this area would become a focus of yours. But in thinking about the biases here, I mean, how is it just the fact that it is remote and, and maybe there was some geopolitical stuff going on? I mean, what, what kind of botanically the history lent to this idea that, it, you know, it seems like a place that botanists would want to go to. And yet it's under sampled and under surveyed in almost every way you can think of. Yeah, you know, I think that if you think of the peninsula, though, in general, the main road there, I mean, until the last... 50, 40 years, maybe 40 or 50 years. And 
it was very difficult to get down. It's a, it's almost a thousand miles before a main paved road went in. Wow. It was a long trek to get down the peninsula in four-wheel drives and very, very slow process. And and that's just the main <laughs> So then you start branching off to the the mountain ranges, you know, that Basically, it's a series of sky islands all the way up and down the mm. peninsula. And as we know about sky islands, you get their high elevation vegetation, disjunct uh, vegetation that is surrounded by different types of desert. And that is allowed for a lot of endemism as well in, in respect to that. But it's hard to get to those high mountains, even today. And then you cannot hike far enough to get into these remote areas not enough water and there's not a actual trail. So it's still a frontier. There's still a lot that uh, uh, needs to be worked on in the, in the peninsular area. Sure. And, and it is kind of this double-edged sword in a way because it is desperately in need of understanding and, and, and categorization. And that flora, again, if you don't know it's there, you don't know what's there, you can't protect it. But at the same time, it is great that it has been so isolated because the farther it is from human civilization, the harder it is for humans to get there. The, the time and time again, you see that's where the most intact flora and fauna really are. So in a way, long may it be that way. But again, it is so nice to have people that are trepidatious and brave enough and, and dedicated enough to go out there and put in that effort to go and do some semblance of, of collection down there. But, you know, aside from the Apuncha, which sounds like you have, you could have had an entire career just studying the ecology and, and diversity of these groups, you know, 25% of the flora down there is endemic. So what other groups have kind of run rampant and diversified into this area that really stand out to you? Well, there are a little over 130 uh, different cacti on the peninsula, but the endemism is over 70%. Oh. It is off the charts. So cacti have really diversified on the peninsula, along with some of the other succulent groups. Dudleyas, the same kind of numbers. That really high endemism in various succulent groups throughout the peninsula. But one thing that I started when I was finishing up the choyas are working on the prickly pears. And it ended up that um, I think they're going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> They're a very difficult group. I think they're more difficult than choyas are. They're so plastic and they just don't have as many characters, uh, morphological characters, that I'm really having issues with, with that group. So I, I know there's various, many new taxa there, but finding the boundaries of those have been a real problem for me. So that's kind of what I've been focusing on in the last uh, Oh, 15 years or so was on on prickly pears. Wow, that's fascinating. And, and, and plasticity is something I think about a lot because that is such a wonderful thing that plants have in their arsenal. And there's obviously a wide range of degrees of plasticity from one lineage to the next. And we don't fully grasp that. But from a cactus standpoint, I mean, is there any hints as to why such plasticity exists in these groups? I mean, they don't strike me as fast growing plants. Um, so maybe... To me, it sounds like it could potentially be like, oh, well, a pad gets here. It has to survive here. Let's take the time and, and have the energy to devote to, you know, maybe the pressures for spine production isn't that heavily. Like what's going on with the plasticity of these groups that really lends to this, oh, well, a confusion, but also adaptability in the face of a lot of environmental challenges? 
you know, they're going to survive no matter what they're dealt. And so <laughs> whether they occur near the coast or a little bit higher elevation, they're going to adapt to that environment as best they can. So, you know, many cacti give up like their speed of growth for survivability. But in all other aspects of the natural history of these plants, they're also about surviving. So whether it is water retention or dispersal or whatever it may be, um, I mean, all plants do that. Let's be totally honest, but you just see it a lot more in these because, well, I don't know, they're, they just, they're more obvious in their growth forms. And, you know, historically, we've had a lot of enthusiasts, uh, amateurs involved in cacti and succulents around the world. And that's caused, well, I mean, they, they've helped us by, you know, finding uh, various types of plants there. They haven't always used rigorous ways when they describe new species uh, in cacti. Mm. And so that means there's a lot more names out there than actual evolutionary taxa. So to give you an idea, in the cactus group in general, I think we have about probably 2,500 different species, 1,000 binomials Whoa. in the group. So that many people from all around the world have basically named and described cacti. I was lucky because collectors don't really like sequoias and they never really got into their diversity. And prickly pears the same way. They don't really like them. If you get into hedgehogs and the barrel cacti, and there are a lot more names out there than what we have in the field. And part of that is just not taking one plant from the field, taking it back to a greenhouse in Europe, but actually looking at that species throughout its range and understanding that variability and how they are changing. I, that's essential. I mean, I think field work is essential for any taxonomist to really understand your species in the field and how they are changing is an essential part. You can't just base it on herbarium specimens or what you have growing in a greenhouse. For sure. I mean, that's one thing I've really come to appreciate as as both a plant grower and someone who spends most of their downtime looking at trying to photograph and find plants in the wild is just that difference that can be made, not only just from having a plant in ideal conditions versus, you know, maybe not ideal conditions, but ideal enough in the wild. That alone lends to so much physical differences. But like you said, Sampling over the range of a species allows you to have an idea of how the, you know, the breadth of complexity of, of environmental exposure that they're capable of handling and the way in which, you know, those sort of sort themselves out physically, anatomically, um, even biochemistry can change from from individual to individual. And that's that's a really good point to make is that as we as a species tend to put all of our eggs into one basket when we find something we really like. And, and really, it's only going to happen cohesively if we, we have both boots on the ground, people doing the molecular work, but also growing these plants out. But again, having field botany techniques is, I think, the big umbrella that must encompass all of the rest, and especially as conservation becomes more and more of an issue for us. Absolutely. And, you know, you think of prickly pears and choyas, you have some added complications to that as well. They are very promiscuous <laughs> in general. Uh -oh. So they, they hybridize. I mean, that is a common way of evolution in some of these groups. And so we have found hybrids between 
most sympatric species. So they actually cross their ranges. You can get hybrids. Now they may not be robust hybrids and they may not, they may be dead ends, or they may actually find their own path, their own niche, so to speak. And that is part of the confusion when you go to the field. Part of that variability is surviving the environment. But think about hybridization. So you've just hybridized with your neighbor species and you get some unique thing that is created, this hybrid. Well, if it's a choya, that thing can spread on its own and it can maintain even asexually for many generations because it's dropping its own stem joint. So you may get entire populations of things that are basically asexual clones or something completely different. So the evolution in these things are really complex um, because they're using both sexual and asexual and then throw in polyploidy and chromosome changes. It's crazy out there in cactus taxonomy. (laughs) So the picture you're painting, when you say uh, these might kill you, it's not just spines and glaucids. It's all of the (laughs) possible permutations of crosses and back crosses. And then, uh, geez, just uh, I'm picturing fields of just very spiny, unwelcoming hybrids that you go, oh boy, we have to wrap <laughs> our heads around this one way or another. That's exactly right. I mean, but I'll give you an example. Here in San Diego, just recently, we just noticed during a bio blitz last year that in Balboa Park here, and we've got open space right near the museum and collected for a long time, that people tend to avoid cacti. But I'm like, what is that choya? And I, we've given put names on these things, but they're not the two dominant choices that occur here. We found various populations of this all over our county that we had no idea was in our own backyard, for heaven's sake. Wow. So sometimes wow. those hybrids can look so close. And so that's still a, a problem for us. I don't know if this is actually just a dead end like F1 hybrid or actually we're dealing with another taxon that we haven't recognized before. That's in San Diego. Now, multiply that exponentially as you go into Baja California. Well, you've got your work cut out for you with those cacti. (laughs) (laughs) But that's cool. I mean, for someone who's curious about the natural world, I mean, there's so much there to to ponder over and and to just kind of throw yourself into. It doesn't, in one way, it does seem overwhelming, but in other ways, that's, that's really exciting to kind of look at a species that's in this big gray area that's challenging so many long-held assumptions and and sort of these things we take for granted and just throws it in your face and it's it's to me it's almost very comical that plants are just they never read the books we write about them oh gosh no and you know to and you're bringing up the conservation aspect actually a very rare choya it's called slenderpuntia californica it's the snake choya that occurs here in kind of the southwestern part of our county and over the border into northwestern baja california and A lot of its habitat is gone because of urban development. I mean, think of the San Diego metro area and cacti typically in our area near the coast. They don't like canopies. They don't compete well with in any fire regime. So you find cacti, the coastal sage scrubs on thin soils on kind of southwest facing slopes that are rocky. So they're rare to begin with. And that species is a sensitive species. So, you know, we try to map the populations and understand that. Throw in this hybrid that we've just come up with. And we basically thought a lot of those populations were the thing that we were trying to protect. And so that makes the Cylindropuntia californica even rarer than, than what we had previously thought. And who knows if this thing is actually another functional species, it's even rarer yet. So 
there are conservation implications when you're looking at uh, hybridization and really trying to understand these species in the field. But uh, we've got a ways to go um, to really understand these, you know, what are our good taxa, what are hybrids. But just because they're a hybrid doesn't mean they're not really important. That's really the way they have evolved into the diversity that they have, like in Baja, California, through hybridization, through polyploidy. So those are integral parts in, the, in those particular groups. That's a very great point to bring up. And I've heard hints of it being talked about in other systems where hybridization events are often qualified as these either one-offs, rarities, or not really important, but what you just described there, especially for plants, uh, that's so vital. And it's something I always like to bring up is that my old evolution professor used to say, he'd get mad when I'd bring up plants as an example in class. He goes, no, stop it. Plants can do whatever they want. They can create a new species overnight, but it's so true. And from a conservation <laughs> standpoint, that's vital to consider. And I'm, I'm very happy to hear someone that's kind of actively involved in this having like that perspective being put forth because again, we want to put these very neat human applied systems to things and make everything super easy to understand. And if there's one thing evolution of life on this planet is trying to teach us over and over and over again, is that that's never going to be the case. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> now, now I wouldn't say that every hybrid is going to have an evolutionary impact by any means, sure. including in cacti. I'll give you a good example. So one of the interesting things about Baja California is you have that Mediterranean area, which has the California Floristic province, and it comes down and it meets the Sonoran Desert, or at least modified Sonoran Desert. And so they come together, and that allows for some opportunities for species that would never, ever touch to actually come together. And so, for example, in El Rosario, which is in the northwestern part of the peninsula, is that kind of impact zone of the California Floristic Province and the Sonoran Desert coming together and forming a mosaic on the landscape. That has provided the opportunity for species like the Cardone, the giant Cardone cactus, Pachycerus pringlii, to hybridize with cacti that are more unique to the California Floristic Province, like Burgera cactus emrii, the velvet cactus. So they come together in that zone. They actually form a naturally occurring intergeneric hybrid. However, that one appears to be like a dead end. It doesn't seem to back cross naturally to either parents, but it occurs in that area. There's an also in that same exact area, there's a hybrid between Myrtillocactus cochal and Burgerocactus emrii. So you have in this region two naturally occurring intergeneric hybrids that are unique looking. I mean, they're very fascinating looking, but they're probably not evolutionary steps. So hybridization, one size does not fit all for the evolution in cacti either. <laughs> it really depends on the group and how they're using that in their evolution. Right. And that's, again, another fascinating thing that can only come from studying these systems. And that's really, I think, the big point to take away from this is that it's not necessarily coming up with a rule that then becomes a panacea for conservation. It's it's more about getting enough people trained, getting enough people interested, whether it's professionally or from a more hobby perspective, to get out there and just look around. And the more people you have doing it, the more times you can go, oh, well, that looks different, or I've never seen that be here before. And that's really where this better understanding is going to come from, not necessarily trying to find that one theory to rule them all. Correct. And 
I'll throw in another little thing that uh, happened to come out of my, my dissertation work. So as I was studying these herbarium specimens and going to the field and bringing them back and trying to understand pollen viability, since we knew there was a lot of chromosome variability, polyploidy in general, and we knew hybridization was a part, I tried to implement some studies to look at how viable pollen is. And I was going through a lot of herbarium specimens and I keep finding, whoa, this, this specimen's not producing any pollen. And then I'd like to find another one. I'm like, this one's not producing any pollen either. And then I started taking a closer look and we found multiple species of choyas that are not your bisexual reproductive biology. So we thought all these choyas and all these prickly pears basically had bisexual flowers. So you had both functional male and female in the flowers. Turns out that uh, we're dealing with gynodiaceae very commonly in some of these groups of choyas, and especially those that have high polyploidy. So we're finding hectoploids and octoploid choyas are implementing some weird things to their, their reproductive biology, where they're starting to separate their sexes. And we had no idea of that before, basically, my dissertation work that came because I was trying to just look at pollen viability <laughs> and finding these individuals who didn't have functional pollen. So that's a whole new aspect about these choyas and some of these cacti that we just didn't even know existed since the last 20 years. And I can tell you, I may have been completely wrong as well Ugh. recently because we have a new professor who just arrived at San Diego State named Yuvia Flores, and she looks at kind of developmental aspects of reproductive biology. And I showed her one of the higher hexaploids, which is Slenderpuntia wolfii, over in our desert of San Diego and Imperial County. It's really kind of a rare species. It does not use any asexual reproduction or anything like that. But we know it's a hexaploid, and we knew what we thought it was doing gynodiesis. But now, developmentally, it looks like they're completely dioecious. So what looked like a bisexual individual is actually a male. And that may be a lot of these choyas that are high polyploids in that particular group, including the new Cylindropuntia chakwalaensis that was just described a year or two ago. Um, they may all be dioecious. And so that's a brand new thing for the understanding of, of these species. So we're still finding things out left and right. And these are rare as far as their distribution is concerned. They're being impacted by things like development in the desert, you know, whether it's wind farms or solar farms or that kind of thing. But we had no idea they were even dioecious. I mean, that, that's a, some basic natural history that we've got to tackle yet. Yeah, I mean, basic natural history from a discovery standpoint, but also, again, going back to conservation, that changes the way you have to approach population dynamics to have a functioning, whatever you define as a population of these species. Understanding that natural history comes right back to all of these big issues that we're facing with biodiversity in general. You can't have one without the other. And then on top of that, Something that comes up time and time again on this podcast, and I love the fact that everyone reiterates this, is that those a lot of those discoveries came from collections and having herbarium specimens in hand to look at and, and, and pour over, and you never know what the next person's going to pick out as different or, or find, and it, that, it just all kind of blends together, screaming, gosh, get some people on the ground looking at plants and doing these natural history observations. 
Absolutely. And make those specimens and get them into a collection. <laughs> I mean, I'm probably a pretty rare example of that being here at the museum. But, you know, we are major pushers of, of collecting and documenting our flora. That was our whole, we did a, what's called the San Diego County Plant Atlas Project, where we trained over 600 volunteers to go out through the entire county on various grid squares and to bring specimens in. They were just to collect and document everything in that grid square. They didn't have to know them because I ID'd everything that came in. We have 70,000 new plant specimens that help document the distribution of these plants throughout our area. And we're facing some crises here in Southern California. I mean, anywhere where human population bursting and we really are trying to document this stuff before it's gone in many ways. And uh, those, I'm very hopeful that those specimens will be used of all this stuff we brought in through our county to help better understand the natural history of a lot of these other plants as well, not just the things I'm currently studying. Yeah, just the fact that that was a volunteer project, getting people to go out into their own community and have some sort of ownership of this, or, or at least a piece of this puzzle they can kind of trace back to themselves and feel a lot better about it. But then just the thought of how many of them went, oh, I never considered this before, or oh, cool, we found this neat little thing in this little corner. Here's why even small tracts of land are important to look at and, and talk about in the conservation decision. And one of the cool things I've noticed, your lab or, or your facilities there, is you have a wall of species that were only found once or maybe a collection was made that wasn't done in the most rigorous way. I mean, just this idea of, yeah, sure, it may have been written down and maybe even has a description, but it, there's, there's plants out there that have only ever been seen once. That's that's ridiculous. Oh, absolutely. So that's my current project. It's a it's a National Geographic Society funded project. And what I did is I selected, uh, we have more than this, but I selected 15 endemic species to the Baja California Peninsula that are only known from the type specimen. So they are endemic, making them unique in general. And they're only known from a specimen. Most of those are like from the 1880s, so well over 100 years old. Jeez. And we don't know if they exist. I mean, uh, we have zero knowledge. And none of them are listed as endangered or any conservation sensitivity whatsoever, even though they are ultra, ultra rare. And so this last year, National Geographic gave me the money to go to the field and do this in collaboration with my Mexican botanist friends on the peninsula in La Paz and Ensenada. And we went out to these historic places and a lot of field work or a lot of, I uh, should say, online work and map work ahead of time uh, to try and figure out where exactly were these collectors at that time on a particular date. And then try to go to that spot or that region. And I've been very lucky so far. So I've gone and looked for 10 of those uh, rare species, and I've actually found seven of the ten thus far. Nice. Um, so it's been a very successful endeavor thus far. The reason I haven't looked for some of the other ones is, remember that on the peninsula, many plants respond to various types of weather, and so you have species like annual species that come up only if winter rains go far down the peninsula, into like the Magdalena Plains in the in the southern state. And there's one of the species I'm looking for has to have that, that weather 
that actually gets wet in the winter, which it's normally a summer rainfall regime. And then this thing would pop up. Well, we've been in some pretty severe droughts recently in the region. So I haven't even looked for some of these species because there's no reason to look. So I now have to wait for some of those weather conditions to change. Um, Hopefully this year we'll get lots of rainfall and I'll be able to go exploring again and see what we can find. Yeah. Wow. And A, amazing work that is so cool that some organization saw that is important enough to give money to. So kudos to Nat Geo for for taking that up and, and, and realizing that even though it's a relatively, again, small region of the world that doesn't get the press of, say, Indonesia or, or, or China, it's still important. You have to go do these sorts of things. But then you have that extra element of, again, understanding the natural history, but the challenges imposed in that, that is so cool, but also can be you know, frustrating in a, in a good way for someone such as yourself that, that values this and understands the importance of it. But then just to be like, well, nature's going to do what nature's going to do anyway. Um, that's remarkable. And, and how cool is it to be involved in a project like that? Oh, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, very thankful for, for these kind of really neat projects to be involved in. And I can tell you that as a result of that, I'm having some success here. Uh, Dr. Sula Vanderplank, who's also a research associate here at the museum, we were able to get some funding from San Diego Zoo and the Center for Plant Conservation set up a project where we're working with UNAM, the National University of Mexico, and Kew Botanical Gardens. And we're going to be headed down to visit these really rare plants, and we're gonna seed bank what we can in these areas to get them permanently into some of our seed banks because some of these are really teetering on the edge of extinction, and they're not gonna make it unless we intervene, at least with some seeds, at the moment anyway, because of livestock and non-natives and all these, we have, you know, we think of Baja California as this pristine area, it's not. There. There are still impacts there. There are a lot of livestock farming. There's a lot of introduced weeds as well. And they are impacting, especially species like this that are just so rare. They're so selective in their niche. I mean, that's why we really kind of need to focus on this for a while on the peninsula. Yeah, I mean, vital stuff. If if we ever have the opportunity to put the pieces back together, these this is the way it's going to be done. And 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 again, it's not valuing one aspect of science over another. It's this all-encompassing, multifaceted approach that we just need to start reevaluating where we place our our values and and conservation dollars to get the the biggest bang for our buck. And I think, you know, being the foundation of all other life, being the primary consumers, plants are a good investment in that way because. Yeah, I mean, just they are the reason our planet is not a closed system. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I have to tell you the other thing that comes out of that. So I get to do a lot of exploring looking for these lost species. But of course, you know, I'm collecting and documenting everything in the process. And as a result, I very commonly stumble over something that's just completely new to science. And that's kind of the benefit of going and looking for some of these things is that uh, I'm constantly finding things um, as well along the way that we didn't even realize were in these these regions. So I'd say right now I've probably got about 30 to 35 new taxa in the cabinets there that I haven't described um, oh. from the California Peninsula. And I can only do like a couple a year because I'm constantly doing all these other projects. But, you know, I, there's a lot out there if we take a closer look. 
and uh, they will be the next generation of very rare plants. Yeah, <laughs> that need some conservation yeah. uh, uh, attention. For sure. That's uh, remarkable. And it's so great you're doing this. I mean, kudos to you and your, your, your colleagues on all levels of this. This is really inspiring work. Um, you know, if people want to find out more about your work, about projects coming up, where do you recommend they go looking for it? Uh, you can definitely, you know, check out our Flora website, uh, BajaFlora.org. Anything with the museum, we have a, a botany department Facebook page, new papers, new discovery. I've just gotten back from the field, a lot of that kind of stuff. Those would be the main things or the museum websites in general. We try to, to get things up there as we make new discoveries. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Remen, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. This is fascinating. It's extremely important work and you're doing an amazing job. And, uh, you know, the world is a better place with folks such as you and your colleagues in it doing doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, Matt. And I've really enjoyed it as well. Thank you for this opportunity. Of course, you are welcome back anytime. So please keep in touch and let us know what you're finding. I will do that. Okay, take care. Yeah, cheers. All right. Fantastic stuff. Thanks for diving back into the history of this podcast with me. Some of you have been with me all along this journey, but for many of the new listeners, that was probably a new episode for you. I appreciate you listening. Of course, I thank Dr. John Redman for taking time out of his busy schedule to tell us all of those stories. And of course, you can find all of the relevant links for everything we talked about in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. While you're over there, check out all of the ways you can help support this show. For instance, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you can buy some of our customizable apparel, you can pick up a copy of my book, some stickers, or you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. I couldn't be doing this show without support from everyone that gives in one form or another, so thank you to everyone who has kicked in. You've made this show possible. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Of course, hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in, but until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.